Thank you so much for that, brother. I encourage you to open your Bible with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, as we continue through this uh, just terrific letter of encouragement. Last week, as, uh, as Mark pointed out, we looked at the first part of chapter, last, chapter, uh, last part of 5 and the first part of chapter 6, where he, he warns them uh, that there, he's got a lot to teach them, but there's dullness of hearing. And the thing that he, he wants to talk to them about is um, it's the, the nature of Jesus Christ's priesthood, uh, that Jesus Christ is not just a priest after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, and we're, not, we're, uh, we're getting to that, but he has to take a pause here and, um, and con- just let them know about his concern for their dull hearing, and then encourage them uh, that they have great reasons for bold faith. Remember, these are suffering Christians. Uh, life is hard. They, uh, they are Jewish Christians, and so they've been, uh, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, expelled from their synagogues, expelled from their families, uh, their extended tribe or family, whatever that, that would be. Uh, they've lost, uh, some of them, their homes. They've lost their careers. Uh, maybe their, their children are maybe questioning if this is worth it. Uh, they've lost all their friends. Boys and girls, think of how hard that would be. And so the cost is high. And they're being tempted to turn and go back. And, and so the, uh, the writer here, most likely Barnabas, the son of encouragement, uh, gives them these incredibly encouraging words this morning as we give our attention then to, Luke, to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. Our text will be uh, beginning at verse 13. But let's, let's start at verse 11. We desire, each one of you, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you. And multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. Well, God in heaven, as we've opened now your word, I pray that you, your spirit would teach it to us. Teach us the things that we do not know. Show us the things that we do not see. Give us the faith to understand and grasp the things, Lord, that we lack. And uh, Lord, I pray that your truth today would become a mighty foundation on which we stand and uh, in great, strong encouragement as we live this life looking for the life to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Our text this morning is about a living with real hope, biblical hope, in the midst of loss and heartache and pain, in other words, the life that we actually are going to be called to live in this world. I remember when I was in seminary, a fellow student invited me to join him on a business venture, and since we were uh, broke as church mice. It sounded good. And so uh, I went with him. And uh, so we end up going to this meeting. It turns out it's an Amway meeting. I, I had vaguely heard about Amway, really knew nothing about it. Uh, back when I was uh, young, uh, Coopersville was a lot farther away from Ada than it is today. And so we, um, uh, so I went to this meeting really not knowing what to expect. And uh, I was impressed by how they clearly challenged the people in the audience to identify and express their hope. The question they ask is, what do you want? What do you want? It's not a bad question. Jesus asked it of uh, the blind man. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see. It's a good question. And the Amway folk encouraged the, uh, the people in the, in the audience then to identify. What is it that you want? What's the dream? I want you to picture it. I want you to name it. Um, then pin it somewhere, you know, where it's visible, like on your refrigerator, so that every day you, you have there the image of, of what it is. What are you, what are you, what are you longing for? Maybe it's, maybe it's a new boat. Maybe it's a, a cottage. Maybe it's a, a dream vacation. Maybe it's uh, something more uh, practical. You want to you uh, bless a missionary family. Whatever it is, put it up there on the, on the fridge so you can see it every day. Now, now, why did they want people to do that? And they were serious about that. Well, the reason is, you see, because they know that people are motivated by desire, motivated by hope. And the more clear you are about the hope, the more, more tangible that hope is to you, the more you're going to be motivated to pursue it. Now, most of us aren't that crass uh, about our hopes. Um, we would feel a little funny about uh, putting up pictures of dream homes or, or cottages or, or boats or uh, whatever. I mean, we think about those things, but it seemed a little odd to put it up on the refrigerator and say, that's, that's what I'm living for or, or, or hoping in. That's, that's where my hopes are found. Uh, we don't do that, but the, the truth is, is we, we just live our, um, our American Christian lives with a lot of assumptions about the life that we, we, um, we hope to have. Hopes that maybe we don't put uh, a, a name to it or we don't put it up in the fridge, but we hope to have uh, health. We, we, when we think about the future, when we think of ourselves 10 years from now, we, we don't see ourselves in a wheelchair. We don't see ourselves with a debilitating disease. We, we, we create a future where we have healthy bodies. We create a future where we hope for family. We don't think of ourselves without maybe a, a spouse, without children, without grandchildren. It's sort of how we think it, it will go and, and how we hope it will go. We, we hope for some success in our career or at least uh, some, uh, some attainment of, of, of comforts in life. We hope to be able to take a few vacations. We hope to have a, a, a fairly nice place to live and, and cars to drive. Those are, those are hopes that we have. And, and the reason you know it's a hope is because when you lose it, it's a shattering thing. Uh, when, you, when you lose... Uh, your, your health in a significant way. 
When you lose a, a spouse, when you lose a child, when you, when you um, realize that uh, you're going to take a financial serious hit, and the future that you hoped for, you see, is gone, then we, then we recognize that the, the power, the motivating power that, that those hopes really had in our life. So what do you do, you see, when hopes get shattered? Because that's where these, uh, these early believers are living. They've lost all the things that you and I sort of naturally uh, hope for, hope in. Their new faith in Christ has cost them in devastating ways. Now, at first, when it first started to happen, the the, the writer will say in chapter 10, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. When tragedies strike, isn't it true that that the initial response is is often a, a response of faith and hope and, and sometimes even joy as, as you see with clarity what really matters and what doesn't matter. And so they responded as a community. They gladly, they rejoiced that they were, they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Well, well, that was then. You see, when the trial goes on and the losses mount, that initial fervor can give way to grief and despair and heartache. Because the permanence of of the losses become evident. They're not going to get their Jewish families back. They're not going to get their status back that they had in the community. They're not going to get their home back, their financial well-being. The life that they had sort of grown up assuming was going to be theirs has been lost and it's not coming back. So we just have to come to these words with with understanding an understanding of what's at stake. How do you live in this world when the things that make this life meaningful and enjoyable are taken away? And some of you are going through that experience now or have recently. All of us at some point in time will. We'll have experiences of seeing our hopes Evaporate or taken away. So how do we live then as God's people in those situations, those contexts? Well, the, the, the writer here, that's what he's about. He's, he's, he wants them to see that they have, they have reasons uh, to, to hope, not primarily for things in this life, but, but to lay hold of the hope that's been set before them. Uh, to lay hold of, of what God has promised to them and, and uh, they will certainly have in Jesus Christ in the midst of all the loss that they're experiencing, there's going to be a time when there's nothing but fullness, nothing but gain. Wouldn't it be nice if we had pictures of heaven to put on the refrigerator where you could we, every day just see the glory, the beauty, the magnificence, the splendor. Well, actually, what the writer here is telling us is that we have something better than pictures of heaven. Pictures can be photoshopped. What we have is the very word of God, uh, which tells us about God's immutable purpose and and God's, uh, the oath that he's taken in his own name. And that's what God has given to us as the foundation for our faith. You see, faith, um, contrary to sort of popular opinion, faith isn't a leap into the dark. Christian faith is standing on what you are convinced is true. Faith 
needs a foundation. It needs reasons. And the patience that he writes about in verse 12. See, he wants these people to live with faith and patience and obtain the inheritance. That's what he wants. Well, faith and patience need something to stand on, something to lean on. And that's what he reminds them they have. And so let's look first then at God's oath and, and then God's desire and then finally our hope. God's oath, God's desire, and our hope. I want you to imagine uh, being on the playground, two, two young guys, maybe friends, and one friend is encouraging the other friend to do something that's risky, something that may have, uh, you know, might not turn out well, might have bad consequences, maybe pull some prank on the teacher, I don't know, something like along those lines. And, and uh, the one friend is encouraging the other one to do it, and, and his buddy says, um, I don't, man, I just don't dare do it. And, and, and finally this guy says, all right, I'll do it with you. We'll do it together. And the other boy says, well, do you promise? Yeah, I promise. Do you swear it? Yes, I swear it. You see, when, when, we, um, when we need assurance, we ask people to promise things. So when you join your life with someone else to, uh, to live in wedded bliss for the rest of your life, you, you, ask the, you ask the other person to make very specific promises before God and his people, really serious promises and really public promises. You, you want something certain if you're going to make this sort of commitment. And, and there's also then legal ramifications. There's, there are, there are, um, if, if you're going to uh, maybe make a, a significant investment, you, you, want, you want a written guarantee that what you're buying is, 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 it's, it is what it's, how it's being represented. You want an oath. You want something written. You want something concrete, um, established, certain, and sure. Friends, that's what God gives to us. That's what God gives to his own children. The author reminds them of an event that they would be uh, well aware of. It happens back in Genesis chapter 22, if you remember Abraham. And it happens at a pivotal moment in Abraham's life. God has asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. After 25 years of waiting for a child, a child that God promised to give him, as every year Abraham got older and, and his wife Sarah got older and, and the, the, poss the human possibility of having a child was completely wiped out in those 25 years. There was no way that Abraham and Sarah were going to have a child. In fact, when the angels came and said uh, to Abraham, you're going you're to have a child, Sarah overhears it in the tent and she starts laughing. It's just not, it's, it's absolutely not possible. And yet, the miracle of miracles, they have a child. God keeps his word. And then when the boy is about 12 years old, God says, I want you to take him now, Abraham. I want you to go up in a mountain, and I'll show you, and I want you to sacrifice Isaac, the son of laughter, the son whom you dearly love. I want you to, I want you to sacrifice him and offer him up to me. And we read the most astounding thing. Abraham, he doesn't protest. He doesn't, he doesn't ask why. He uh, gathers the necessary materials and, and uh, calls Isaac, and they head out for the mountain. And Isaac said, but, but Dad, where's the, we got the wood, but where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide, my son. 
And then they go up and Abraham builds the altar and he lays out the wood and then he binds his son, his, his precious 12-year-old boy. And he lays his son on the altar and he takes the knife and he, he's about to sacrifice his son and God intervenes. And this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. The, the, the Hebrew reads, blessing you, I, uh, blessing I will bless you. It repeats the verb to make the emphasis. Multiplying, I will multiply you. As uh, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that's on the seashore. It's going to be an explosion of offspring for Abraham. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Notice his. Uh, there's, a, there's a singular there. And Paul will pick up on this and point that Jesus Christ is the, the, uh, the ultimate end of this promise. And in Jesus Christ, Abraham is going to have spiritual offspring. Children of faith. Paul says, if you believe, if you, if you have faith, you are the spiritual descendant of Abraham, the father of faith. God makes this promise, but it's not just a promise. He swears an oath. By myself, I have sworn. Now, we have to see the significance of that if we're going to feel the impact of it. What's the point of an oath? Why do we ask people to make promises and to swear an oath? Well, the reason we do that is because people are notoriously unreliable. People lie. Look you straight in the eye and tell you a flat out lie. Uh, people forget. People um, change their mind. People are not reliable. And so uh, we, we ask a person then, well, you need to promise it or even more, you need to, you need to make, take an oath on this. And, and an oath is swearing by something greater than yourself. Verse 16 tells us this. People swear by something greater than themselves and all their disputes. An oath is final for confirmation. You see, it confirms the truth of what you're saying. That's why in a court of law, you have to take an oath on a Bible that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Now, if you violate that, you see, you're, there's blasphemy and sacrilege involved because you're, you're bringing God's name into your testimony. It's a serious thing. But notice, that God, of course, has no one greater to swear by. There's no one greater than God, and so he swears by himself. By myself, I have sworn. He takes an oath. Thus attaching, you see, the immutable character of his being to this promise that he has made. And notice the impact that it has on Abraham. Verse 15, and thus, on the basis of God's sworn oath and promise, thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So these are the facts of the case. God makes a promise. He affirms. He swears by himself to keep the promise. Abraham believes God and in faith has patience and obtains the promise. And that's the paradigm for the Christian life. That's the paradigm. God speaks, swears, we believe, exercise patience in faith and obtain the promise. Now, if you remember the life of Abraham, 
And even just the event in Genesis chapter 22, you can just shake your head and say, who, who can do this? What amazing faith Abraham has. In chapter 11, we read that the reason he was able to lay his son on the altar and raise the knife is because Abraham believed that God was able to raise the dead. So that even if he killed his child, Abraham believes that this child is the child of promise. This child is the child through whom uh, God is going to make Abraham the father of many nations and bless the world. And so if, if God asks me to slay my own son, God will raise my son. That's what Abraham believes. Now that's astonishing, astonishing faith. But you see, what we think of as astonishing faith is just simple faith in what God says. It's simple faith in a, in a great God and in immutable promises. So great faith, you see, operates on the simple principle. God said it. He swore an oath to it. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will never pass away. Let every man be a liar. God is true. His words never fall to the ground without accomplishing the task for which they were sent. So in Abraham's reasoning, what more does he need? God made a promise. God is God. His, he, it's a, a, he's a sworn an oath by his own immutable character. What more need he say? The, 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 There's incredible significance about God's word and his promise and his oath. But I want you to also notice the condescending love in this. It's really astonishing. If you you think of a conversation maybe you might have with a good friend or a conversation you might have with your spouse, and you say to your guys, if you say to your wife, honey, uh, tell you what, I'll do such and such. I'll I'll get the oil changed in the the van. I'll, um, I'll clean out the garage. And your, your wife says, uh, you will? You're going to think, well, yeah. Yeah, I said I would. And then she says, promise it. Why should I have to promise it? I said I'd clean out the garage. Now, there, she could probably come up with 10 reasons why I should have to promise it. Uh, but geez, I'm a little offended that, that she would ask me. I said I would do it. Can't you just say thank you? No, you have to promise. Well, all right. Do you promise? Okay, I promise. Well, what if she comes back and says, do you swear it? Are you willing to take an oath on it? Sign this. I'm going to say, jump in the lake. (laughs) I'm not signing anything. (laughs) I said I would do it. I promised I would do it. I'm offended that you would come back and and ask me for an oath. It's offensive. Well, imagine how gracious God is. He's told us in his word what he he will do for us. He said, I will will love you. I I will freely forgive all of your sin. I will robe you in a righteousness not your own. I will do good to you. I will, I will make all 
work all things for your eternal good, and, and I will bring you into my own glorious presence, all because of Jesus Christ. I will do all this. But you see, in our, in our attitudes and actions, don't we sometimes doubt God and say to God uh, in our fears, do you promise And God, though he has never once broken his word, and we couldn't come up with a single reason why he would now, God is not offended, but God is willing to say, I promise. He he gives his promise. And then when we face maybe greater trials, longer trials, the doubts and fears can return. And and once again, we find ourselves questioning the reliability of God and daring to believe that God maybe, maybe God was not telling the truth that maybe we have believed in vain and, 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 and we have the audacity in a sense to say in our grief, our hurt, do you swear to it? And God with infinite condescending love says, yes, I swear to it. Why would, why would God, why would he condescend to that level? Why, why would he be willing to do that? And the answer is found in verse 17. Because he desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. There is an incredible desire of God that's revealed here. God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. Our Father in Heaven, friends, has a, an, a vast, passionate desire to convince us irrefutably of his, of his glorious, immutable purpose for us. God has a purpose that He is working out throughout all of history and is working out in, in your life. And that purpose, you see, is going to, if, if we believe it, if, if, if we have faith in what God is doing, it's going to change how we do life. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to impact us. There's going to be patience and, and faith and confidence as we know, we, we absolutely know that we're heirs of everlasting life. I uh, was reading in one of the commentators, they were talking about a... Uh, a soldier who was in, in World War II, I believe, and in some foreign city, and uh, the battle's raging, and... And he sees a, uh, an American officer walking his way. And there's a certain calmness and demeanor about this, this man that in, in the midst of all the chaos and all the danger, all the fear, here comes this man who just doesn't seem to be really affected much by it. And they walk past each other and they, and they, uh, they lock eyes and, and, uh, and they keep going. But this man... Um, hears a sound, turns around, and this officer is coming directly at him, sticks his finger in his chest and says, young man, what is the chief end of man? And uh, the young man says, well, the chief end of man, sir, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, sir. And a big smile broke out on the officer's face. He said, I knew you were a Westminster boy. And he says, sir, I thought the same. You see, there's, there's something about people who really believe that, not just who know the answer, but who actually believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and that it is because of God's own sovereign purpose that we get to do both. That gives a calmness. Some, some 
palpable serenity, even in the midst of chaos and strife and heartache and tears. And this, you see, is what God desires. He desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable, immutable character of his purpose. God wants you to be absolutely convinced of these things. Now, there's, there's a pernicious, mal- wicked doctrine in some circles, even in Reformed churches, that teaches that assurance should not be um, pursued in the sense that, that um, we should sort of live in, in some fear and trembling lest we commit the sin of presumption. The Roman Catholic Church... In, in medieval days, uh, was nervous about people having too much assurance. I mean, if they had all this assurance, what would motivate them to live holy lives? And so you talked about long time in purgatory and, and the, the, the difficulty and the price to be paid. You didn't, you didn't want them gladly, happily assured that they were heirs of heaven. Well, there's some even Reformed churches who say, well, that's, that would be presumption. It is not presumption, it's faith. Nothing could be further from the truth, that this idea that God does not want you to be assured. This, I mean, just look at the text. God has always desired his people to have great assurance, unshakable confidence as they lean on his word, as they trust in what he said, as they take his oath in hand. And say to the accusing devil, and say to the mocking world, and say to the fickle self, God said it. God does not change. They learn to live by every immutable word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, that's, that's what faith does. It believes that God has a purpose, an unchangeable purpose, because he said he does. That he created you, not by accident, not just uh, sort of on a, on a whim, But that God knew you, he knew the number of your days, he knew every atom in your body before you were born. And God decided in eternity past to, 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 he set his love on you, and that means that he gave you to his son, Jesus Christ, who would be your mediator, your redeemer. And God promises that that in time he would bring you to faith in that Savior. That was his purpose. And And then in Jesus to bring you into the glorious reality of a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible says audacious things about Christians. Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that you are destined to obtain salvation. If you're a Christian, it's not because you were raised in a Christian home. That was maybe an instrument, but it wasn't, that's not the, the undercore, the underlying reason. It's because you were destined by God's determination. You were predestined, Ephesians 1, for adoption as sons. Those God foreknew, he also called, and justified and glorified. God has a purpose, and it's an immutable purpose, and he wants you to know it. He wants you to be absolutely convinced of it, and that's why he swears an oath. God doesn't swear oaths for the reasons men do. Men swear oaths because we're unreliable and we lie. God never lies. He cannot lie. His purposes do not change. 
What he purposes, he does. What he says, he does. What he promises, he fulfills. Every time, every way, in every aspect. So why does God take an oath? Because he wants you to be convinced. He wants you to be done with, with doubt and done with fear and done, done with the, the, the questioning. He wants you to be convinced of his immutable purposes. Because he loves you. You're his child. What, what parent wouldn't want their child to be utterly convinced of their love and their faithfulness and their commitment to them? Your father wants you to be absolutely convinced of your present status as a child of the living God. He wants you to be absolutely convinced of your future inheritance as an heir of everlasting bliss in a new heaven and a new earth as the bride of Jesus Christ, as the people of God, where God will dwell with you and and you will dwell with him. I want you to know that so you can stand in the middle of a lost, chaotic, decaying, broken world. He wants you to, he wants you to be able to stand in the midst of, of loss and heartache and grief with faith and patience because you believe what God has said and you are holding to the hope God has set before you. And those are the, the determining truths and defining realities of your life. That's why God swore an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong, you could read, mighty, powerful encouragement or comfort to hold fast the hope set before us. God's word and his immutable eternal purpose, you see, provide mighty comfort, mighty encouragement to those who have fled for refuge. That, that, uh, that term comes from the Old Testament uh, cities of refuge. Maybe you remember where, where God, when Israel went into the land, God set apart six cities, three on each side of the Jordan, so that if someone accidentally killed someone else and was liable to uh, be killed by a, a relative of the victim, which was allowed. But, it, but if you accidentally killed someone, you had the, the opportunity to literally run for your life to a city of refuge. And once you were in the city of refuge, you were safe from the avenger. Now you had to stay there, you had to live there, you had to make that your home until the high priest died, then you were free to go back home, but that was your, that was your new home, but that was, there was safety there, and, and the author is just saying, that's what a Christian is, you see. A Christian is a person who has literally run for his life to Jesus. A, a Christian is not someone who just ascends to certain truths. A Christian is not someone who was raised in a certain culture. A Christian is not someone who does certain religious practices like go to church. A Christian is a person who has understood the danger that they are in, who realizes that the law of God is an avenger and that they are guilty, and so they flee for refuge to Jesus. That's what a Christian is. And the promises those who've done that are eternally safe. Now God, you see, is then speaking to people who fled 
to Jesus for refuge. And, and God says, listen, I've, I've made a promise and I've given you, you my oath um, so that you, those of you who have fled for refuge to Jesus, so that you can lay hold of the hope that is set before you. Now there's, a, there's, a, there's so much that I want to say about that very phrase that I'm going to make that the, uh, the topic of our message this evening. Because we cannot just move quickly past that. What is the hope set before us? I mean, do we, is it tangible? Is it, is it, does it have form and shape in your mind and, and heart so that it's actually impacting how you do life? And so tonight, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at what is the hope set before us. And it just in short, it's, it's all the glory of God that's promised to, to you, his child, all the promises of God for this life and for the life to come. The hope ultimately is the new heaven and the new earth. That's what we're waiting for. We're not, our hope isn't in this life. We're looking for a better country. We're looking for a city with foundations. We're looking for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're looking for that time and that place when all death and mourning and crying and sin and pain is done away with. That's our hope. That's where we've, we've set our hope. We are convinced that the satisfactions of all of our deepest desires, which are not met in this life, are going to be met then. And so we wait patiently in hope. Tonight, Lord willing, we'll pick that up. Right now, just to follow the line of thought, God has a great desire for you to be confident and, and, and be so confident that, that as you lose things in this life, as you will, as you do, that they will not shatter you because, because this wasn't ultimately your hope. Ultimately, your hope is all that God has promised you in Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. But God has given you in this life, you see, reasons for that hope. And we have that finally, our hope. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. As a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Notice what we have. We have this. We have this. We're not trying to get it. We're not pursuing it. We're not um, figuring out some way to try to obtain this. If you have fled to Jesus Christ for refuge, you have this. What? You have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. That hope is the possession of every Christian, every true child of God, no matter how weak your faith is, no matter how young in the faith you are, if you've confessed your sin, if you fled for refuge to Jesus, you have this hope. And notice what this hope does. It is a sure, steadfast anchor for the soul. Uh, the imagery comes from the nautical world of, of uh, the Mediterranean Sea of that time, a commentator writes this. He says, The word forerunner is another one of the nautical terms used in Hebrews. The particular word here, a prodromos, which means forerunner, uh, it, it appears nowhere else in Scripture, but it has to do with a familiar scene of the ancient world. Louis Talbot explains, Greek harbors were often cut off from the sea by sandbars over which the larger ships could not pass until the full tide came in. 
Therefore, a lighter vessel, a smaller boat, a prodromos, or forerunner, would take the ship's anchor, row over the sandbar into the harbor, and set the anchor. From that moment, he writes, the ship was safe from the storm, though it had to wait for the tide before it could enter the harbor. The forerunner carrying the ship's anchor was the pledge that the ship would safely enter the harbor when the tide was full. Doesn't matter how large the waves might be. Doesn't matter which way the wind might be blowing at the time. You see, if the anchor was there, what they would do is take a winch and they would just winch themselves into the harbor. Because the anchor was there, it was, it was the pledge that the ship itself would one day be in uh, soon into that beautiful harbor. And so he's painting a picture here, a picture of people would recognize. And he's reminding them, you see, our Lord Jesus has been with us on this ship that we call life. He knows all about the storms. He knows all about the tempests. He knows about the trials and the heartaches. And then he left the ship. But not to abandon us, he left the ship as a forerunner to lay an anchor in the new heaven and the new earth. He entered into, um, into that harbor of, e of eternal blessedness, not just representing us, but as a pledge guaranteeing that we will also one day enter the calm waters of that eternal shore. How do you know, if someone asks you, how do you know you're going to heaven? And what people often stop to think about is uh, how good they've been. But if you're a biblical Christian, you realize that's not going to work. And so you think about how good Jesus was, and that's correct. I know because Jesus was righteous. But, but here's this image. You can, you can say, I know because I belong to Jesus, and he's already there. I've been united to Jesus, and he's already in the harbor, and I cannot be separated from Jesus. He's the anchor, I'm the ship, and nothing can separate us, you see, because the, the line between the anchor and the ship, there's two lines, actually, the immutable purpose of God and the oath of God. And what's going to sever the immutable purpose of the living God, and what's going to break the oath of God? Well, Nothing. Absolutely nothing in all the world. And even though I can't see the anchor, right, when it gets dropped, when it gets dropped into that harbor, it, it's, it's a ways off and it's under the water. I can't see it. But the fact that it's there and the lines that run to it assure me that one day soon I'll be in the harbor. And the writer tells us, Jesus, we don't see him now. He's gone into the inner place. He's thinking about the tabernacle. He's gone through the veil. Jesus has gone into the holy of holies where we were not going to be allowed to be but now suddenly he's there as our high priest. Because he's in that, that holy of holies, we know that one day we'll be in the holy of holies very soon. That's our harbor. That's our ultimate destination in the very presence of God. And it's precisely because Jesus is there that we know that we will be there ourselves. Now we do not see him. But we have the anchor and we have the lines of God's immutable purpose and God's unbreakable oath. And so, you see, then it doesn't matter what happens, what storms come our way. It matters in the sense that it hurts and it's, and it's painful and it's, and it's excruciatingly hard. The Bible never diminishes any of those truths. 
But, but God says it's, it, it's ultimately not dangerous. Because no winds, no waves, no tides, you see, can keep us from what Christ has accomplished for us. No, no, no wind, no wave, no tide is going to break the link between you and Christ. That's been created by God himself. And so what do we do? We need to hold fast to the hope set before us. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more could he say? What more could he say? Then to you, he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled, if he's given you his oath and he's shown you his immutable promise and he's sealed it with the blood of his own son, what more could he say? And so lay hold. Don't judge your, your destiny. Don't judge your, your, your well-being by your circumstances. Judge your well-being and your destiny by the oath and promise of God. Judge your well-being and your destiny by the reality of Jesus Christ, all that he has been for you, all that he's done for you, and all that is assuredly yours in him. And just a word to those struggling this morning to believe. God knows. We read from Psalm 103. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our frame. And so if you're saying, Pastor, I believe everything you're saying. I just don't feel it. I, I it's, it's, it's just hard for me to lay hold of. I, I just want to remind you that the anchor holds even when you are weak, even when your grasp is very weak. The anchor holds. The anchor's not letting go of the boat. The lines that tie us to the anchor, you see, tie that anchor to us as well. And that anchor is there even when you can't see it, even when you don't sense it. Maybe it's, it, it, the darkness has settled in. You don't see the lines. You don't see the anchor. But the anchor, friends, is still there. It's not going anywhere. And the beauty, you see, of, of being a Christian is that, is that your hope has a name. His name is Jesus Christ, and he knows you. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, Christ Jesus, our hope. Jesus knows. Jesus cares. He's given his life to rescue you. He's given his life to give you all the glory of the goodness of God forever. And he's going to get you there. Let that change your life. Let's pray. God in heaven, some of us are, are really tired this morning. It's been a long, hard road. And we have questioned if you really care and if we were going to be able to survive. And we've despaired because of the grief, the loss. The future that we had hoped for in this life has been taken away. And Jesus, thank you that you are able to sympathize with us, and, and you do. But I thank you, oh God, that you've, you raise our eyes to realize that this life wasn't the hope. But the hope is what is yet to come. And that hope is fixed, immutable, unchangeable. And you call us to trust in it so that we can live this life through the, through the pain and the tears with faith and patience as we await the reception of the inheritance for it is surely coming. 
Father, you know us this morning. I, I pray for those who have fled for refuge to Jesus, that they would, by the Holy Spirit, be astonished at the confidence that they can have. And that, Lord, that, that confidence would go deep down into our heart and soul and would produce a new calm, a new grace and humility and joy and love and hope that we share with others. I pray, Lord, this would change the way we, we argue with our spouse and we would start loving and dying to self. May it change the way we interact with our children as we don't, we don't put our hope in our children. Our hope is in God and, and we invite our children to, to share that. Changes the way we grieve and changes how we pray. Changes our demeanor. And Lord, for those who don't know Jesus, I pray that you would help them to see what they're missing. Because in the middle of a lost, chaotic, dying world, Lord, they too will die unless they flee to Jesus for refuge. And so give them the grace to do that. May they see what's at stake, what they can have, what they lack. And Lord, give the gift of faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.